Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Good evening. We've just learned about a new witness coming forward in the Ukraine affair, this time from the White House. That's our breaking news. And it comes on the eve of testimony from another witness. He was reportedly there at a restaurant in Ukraine while EU Ambassador Gordon Sundland talked by cell phone to President Trump. He'll be interviewed behind closed doors tomorrow by House lawmakers. Also tomorrow, in a very public hearing, testimony from the former ambassador to Ukraine, whom President Trump had called, quote, bad news. Those are the exact words that he used to describe Marie Yovanovitch. Bad news, he called her during his July 25th phone conversation with Ukraine's president before saying, quote, well, she's going to go through some things. It's unlikely the president meant it this way, but tomorrow, one of the things she'll be going through will be providing evidence to Congress. As significant as, significant as her testimony may turn out to be, it could be eclipsed by what David Holmes, a staffer at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, tells lawmakers away from the cameras. His story of, as we mentioned, a potentially key phone call came to light in surprise testimony yesterday from his boss, Bill Taylor, now the top diplomat, U.S. diplomat in Ukraine. The member of my staff could hear President Trump on the phone asking Ambassador Sondland about the investigations. Ambassador Sondland told President Trump the Ukrainians were ready to move forward. Following the call with President Trump, the member of my staff asked Ambassador Sondland what President Trump thought about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland responded that President Trump cares more about the investigations of Biden, which Giuliani was pressing for. Ambassador Sondland is, of course, Gordon Sondland, ambassador to the European Union and a million-dollar Trump donor. He gave the million dollars to the inauguration. Uh, tomorrow's testimony puts the pressure on Sondland to testify to what was on that particular call, which the president says he doesn't even remember. Again, he also says he hardly knew Sondland, who, as I said, wrote a million-dollar check uh, for the inaugural and whom the president rewarded with a plum job. In any case, this all ties the president tighter to the allegations against him. Could weaken one of the main Republican talking points that the testimony so far is second, third or fourth hand? They're offering hearsay. Hearsay. Hearsay is hearsay. Not second hand. It's uh, all third hand information. Second, third, fourth hand, no hand information. In a real court of law, that would be objected to as hearsay. It's perception on one side and hearsay on the other. Well, keep it honest, it is not strictly true that hearsay is inadmissible in court. In fact, Federal Rules of Evidence, Rule 803, details 23 specific exceptions under which hearsay evidence can be used at trial. But remember, congressional hearing rooms are not courtrooms, and House impeachment proceedings are not criminal trials. Also, it should be noted that if the Republicans are really wanting to hear from witnesses with direct connection to the president, if that's what the president wants, Mick Mulvaney could testify, so could John Bolton. That would be possible, but so far they're not willing to testify without a court ruling. As for the case the Democrats are now making, today House Speaker Pelosi put it as bluntly as she ever has, saying to her the testimony so far makes a case for bribery. That's one of the charges specified by name in the Constitution's language on impeachment. You talked about bribery a second ago. Yes, a bribery. That's a very serious charge. It's what in the Constitution. Of well, you know, uh, we're talking Latin around here, e pluribus unum from anyone, from anyone. Quid pro quo, 
bribery. Bribery. And that is in the Constitution attached to the impeachment proceedings. So what was the bribe here? The bribe is to grant or withhold military assistance in return for a public statement of a, uh, of a fake investigation into uh, the, the elections. Well, Speaker Pelosi also took a moment to remind the president that he is free to, free to provide witnesses to refute the case being made against him. It's called an inquiry. And if the president has something that is exculpatory, Mr. President, that means you have anything that shows your innocence, then uh, he should make that known. And that's part of the inquiry. And uh, so far, we haven't seen that, but we welcome it. And uh, that's what an inquiry is about. Uh, late this evening, as we said at the top, we uh, learned that an official of the president's Office of Management and Budget will testify if subpoenaed. His appearance is now scheduled for Saturday. Also tonight, the question of what to make a video of Attorney General William Barr and others in what's been described as an animated exchange in the Oval Office earlier today with the president. The conversation uh, was uh, it delayed the president's departure for a campaign trip, after which the president was seen reading a redacted document. And it's unclear what exactly it was or whether it was connected with the prior conversation. More now from the White House. You know, Jim Acosta is there for us. So what are you learning about how the White House is preparing for tomorrow? Anderson, they are sizing up uh, some of these upcoming witnesses. Uh, for example, Marie Yovanovitch, who is the former Ukra Ukraine ambassador, uh, told by a White House official that they are already uh, sending out their talking points, already talking about uh, whether or not she's going to be that uh, great of a witness for the Democrats. This White House official said, uh, you know, essentially, what does Marie Yovanovitch know about the July 25th phone call that the president had with the leader of Ukraine? She, she doesn't know anything about it because she wasn't on that phone call. and She was the, U the Ukraine ambassador at that point. Uh, so they're sort of looking at who's coming up uh, and, and sizing up uh, each of these witnesses. I will tell you that the official that I spoke with also talked about uh, this overheard conversation uh, that Bill Taylor testified uh, to yesterday about how the president and the EU ambassador Gordon Sondland had this phone call that was overheard uh, by one, at least one official uh, who heard the president say the word investigations. According to this White House official, that is no reason to stop the presses. Uh, of course, the president has been asking about investigations. They don't see anything wrong with that. This meeting with the president and Attorney General Barr and the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, uh, which was seen you know, through the windows there, I just want to replay the video of it. I understand you're learning a little bit more about what they're talking about. Do you, what, what do you know? Yeah, Anderson, it, it was very mysterious because the president was coming out of the White House uh, shortly after this meeting to talk to, well, presumably to talk to reporters. He does these chopper talks from time to time. He didn't do one today uh, as he was heading down to this rally in Louisiana. Uh, but for a good 30 minutes, uh, he was in the Oval Office with Bill Barr, the attorney general, with Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel. And our understanding is, talking to our sources, uh, is that uh, this meeting touched on in part very briefly uh, on the uh, Horowitz report, which is the uh, report that is expected to come out soon, not sure when, uh, from the inspector general inside the Justice Department who has been investigating the origins of the FBI uh, counterintelligence investigation of the 2016 election, the origins of the Russia investigation. Uh, this obviously has been of great interest to the president. It's something that Bill Barr has been uh, working on, obviously keeping tabs on for some time, uh, and the inspector general has been working on for some time. Apparently, after that meeting uh, between those three individuals broke up, Anderson, then Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff, Stephanie Grisham and others came into the room 
but my understanding from talking to a source this evening about all of this is that that meeting between those three individuals was kept uh, pretty much under wraps uh, until it ended. But yes, we understand the Horowitz report, which is due to come out uh, fairly soon, uh, that that was one of the subjects tackled in that meeting. And the transcript that the president has been touting about the first call between him and President Zelensky of Ukraine, uh, that is sensibly going to be released still? Well, we thought it was going to come out today. We thought it was going to come out earlier this week. We don't believe that is coming out this evening. Uh, I talked to a White House official uh, earlier today about this who said uh, that this uh, first uh, call transcript, if you want to call it a transcript, it may be a summary transcript of the president's phone call when he congratulated Zelensky for winning the election in Ukraine, uh, that that was ready to go, that it had cleared all the hurdles inside the White House, including the White House counsel's office, and was awaiting a word from the president that it was okay to issue uh, that that rough call transcript. It has not been issued and there's no timetable as to when it's going to happen. I was told by an official earlier today the timing of that release is fluid. Anderson. Right. Clearly, the, the, the fact that the president has been touting it, the president is pretty pleased with what is in that call transcript, although he seemed fine with what's in the other call, the call transcript, which obviously right. uh, a lot of other people see differently. And, and Anderson, we should point out, I mean, to our viewers, it is what happened on the July 25th phone call that matters in all of this in the inquiry. And the president is obviously hoping to uh, release this first call transcript to say, look, I didn't do anything uh, in this other call transcript. That doesn't right. have anything to do with whether or not there was a, an illegal quid pro quo uh, that was uh, the subject of that July 25th phone call. Right. And the subject of weeks of work before and months of work before and after. Jim Acosta, thanks very much. Right. Joining us now, right. one of the questioners tomorrow, California Democratic Congresswoman uh, Jackie Speer is here with me. The, the change in um, uh, Speaker Pelosi using the word bribery, is that more of a, sort of a messaging that the whole quid pro quo is not something which is a term commonly used by people, but bribery is far more understandable, extortion, things like that, and also bribery is mentioned in the Constitution? Well, the fact that bribery is mentioned in the Constitution, I think, is something that the American people grab onto, treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors. And the elements of a bribery taking place are just so clear. You have a public official who either directly or indirectly asks for something of value in exchange for doing an official act. That is what President Trump did. Mm. And so I think that the only thing we have to establish is that was there corrupt intent? And I think you have to look at his actions. He is withholding information from the committee. He's preventing many people from testifying before the committee. Uh, he had a back channel with Rudy Giuliani and others to pursue it. You start adding all of that together and you have a pretty solid case. Do you think that there would be more than just uh, the issue with Ukraine, if if there if it does come to uh, to articles of impeachment, that it would be uh, their obstruction of justice from the Mueller report uh, it would be involved as well. Well, there was clearly obstruction of justice. It was spelled out in the Mueller report. He chose not to pursue it because of the guidelines within the Department of Justice about not indicting a s sitting president. But I don't think we're going to walk down that path. I think we're staying very focused on the Ukraine. Phone call. On the argument that many Republicans are making, and certainly tomorrow it seems like with the ambassador going to be making as well, is that she really had no knowledge of, you know, she wasn't talking to the president and all this other stuff is, is hearsay. We hear that now, third, fourth, fifth hand. 
Well, first of all, I mean, hearsay is like circumstantial evidence. And in most crimes, it's circumstantial evidence that actually right, establishes people get convicted the crime. On that all the and time. we also have this summary of the president's phone conversation, and then we have his actions afterwards. And now we evidently have uh, Mr. Sondland talking to the president, which the president says, how about the investigation? So it's pretty it's pretty straightforward. Sondland never mentioned this other call. I believe in, in his testimony, he said he couldn't remember if there were one or two calls with him and the president. But uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. He never mentioned this other call at the dinner that now uh, that uh, Ambassador Taylor referenced that uh, one of his aides. That's right. Heard. And what's so interesting is that you have the president saying, uh, well, I, I really don't know much about this the gentleman, except right. that he gave this gentleman his personal cell phone number. And evidently, Ambassador Sondland has him on speed dial. I mean, there was probably at least six phone conversations that they had. It's also, I mean, there is, for, for a candidate, uh, like uh, for President Trump, uh, who as a candidate was very upset about the uh, security, you know, violations or, you know, uh, the security standards of Secretary Clinton, to be using a cell phone in a restaurant in Ukraine, of all places, I mean, that sort of violates every uh, norm of of trying to keep secrets from your, you know, adversaries. Well, and the president using a cell phone as well, which he does, and is, you know, verboten, actually. Uh, and the irony is, you know, Russia could know more about this conversation than we'll ever know. Um, the Mark Sandy, this attorney for the OMB, is going to testify on Saturday if subpoenaed. He would be the first witness from the OMB. Prior to this, there had been testimony uh, that somebody at the OMB had uh, had said uh, that, this came, that the president had, is, was holding up the aid. Do you know much about this witness, what, what he will testify to? Well, we know he's a career uh, civil servant. He's been in and out of OMB for a number of years. We also know that he did sign the July hold on the military aid. Subsequent holds on the military aid were done by political uh, appointees. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what happened. It, it appears that he, without having had the interview yet, um, was resistant or was asking questions about why they were putting a hold on. Hmm. Do you know, it, 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 is, is it one step closer to trying to figure out exactly how that order came down? Because, I mean, it seems something like hold, putting a hold on aid, you would think there would be a large paper trail on something like that. Well, you can withhold aid. Typically, there's a process by which you use uh, either rescission or what's called reprogramming. Neither of those things took place. Normally, there's some description as to why there's a hold put. Mm. And obviously, there wasn't any in this case at all. And then we have a, you know, a number of incidents where we've heard from people who said that it was being. And we've got text messages from Volcker and Sondland about the fact that um, the president was holding the military aid until there was an investigation if, if announced. The, if the ultimate goal is to get some Republicans in the Senate to uh, you know, if this goes to impeachment to get some Republicans in the Senate to kind of look at this with different eyes. Do you think any move has been made to toward that thus far with the testimony? You know, how do you know? I mean, every day there's another um, disclosure. There's another bombshell. Um, the conversation at a restaurant now is new information that we didn't know about a day ago. So I, I think what we have to do is, is just do our job. Mm. And this inquiry will move forward. We will present our evidence to the Judiciary Committee. They will assess whether or not they're going to create articles of impeachment. And then the House will take it up.
Congresswoman Spear, we appreciate your time. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Busy day. With a big day of testimony tomorrow, this newly explicit allegation of bribery will discuss the accusations that the White House is facing uh, with our legal and political folks, as well as a veteran of the Watergate scandal. Also, we'll bring you new details from the site of that deadly school shooting today just north of Los Angeles and the latest on uh, what went on. Well, for the first time, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is calling the allegations against President Trump, quote, bribery. We talked about that uh, just a moment ago with uh, Congresswoman Speer. Specifically, she said of Wednesday's public hearing, quote, the devastating testimony corroborated evidence of bribery uncovered in the inquiry. Now, as we mentioned up top, bribery is not only a specific crime that may be easier for voters to understand. It's also specifically mentioned in the Constitution as an impeachable offense. Uh, joined now by our well, our legal and political folks, John Dean, Jeffrey Tubin, David Gergen, Gloria Borger, Kirsten Power, Scott Jennings, and Jen Psaki. Jeff, I mean, do you put significance in the fact that they're, Nancy Pelosi is using the word bribery now? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think they are getting away from quid pro quo because most Americans, except David Gergen, speak English rather than Latin. Uh. And, um, I, and, and, you know, and bribery is also a, you know, it is, it is clear um, what it is. And there is evidence to support it. Personally, I think extortion may be a more accurate description. But is it a little late for them to try to be rewriting sort of, you know, re uh, marketing what this thing was? I don't really think so. I mean, the the facts are the facts. And, um, you know, we are now moving into the impeachment process. And it happens to be true that, you know, the Constitution speaks specifically of, you know, treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. But Gloria, I mean, what changed? Why do you think they now made this change? Quid pro quo wasn't working. It was complicated. Latin, as, Latin. You, as you point out. And the, the president, you know, the uh, supporters of the president kept saying, well, you can't have a quid pro quo if there was an aid. You know, the aid wasn't stopped. I got the aid. So where's the quo? Would that be what? I, I, but, you have to ask Gergen. I don't know. I don't know. But but I think as a result, uh, Pelosi and also Adam Schiff started doing it earlier, started saying, look, you know, this is easier for people to digest. And by the way, I just happen to have Article two of the Constitution here. And it says that a president uh, can be removed from uh, on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So when you have it there, you use the word. David, It's it's a lot easier to argue somebody took a bribe or offered a bribe offered. than it is to get into a conversation about what is a high crime or misdemeanor. Mm. Because it's exactly in the Constitution, I think, this gives Democrats a little more le- uh, a little more leverage. And it's clear with the public. And what the Democrats need overall is they need a much better messaging uh, process of their own. They need some gravitas in the way we talk about this. Mm-hmm. John, is, do you, I, is that I what's lacking? And I don't think it's too late to... To put that word out, and that word will likely stick more than quid pro quo, which is kind of confusing. I think it. I think the quid pro quo really started in the White House with Trump, who, when he was making some of these calls to people like Sondland, said, for goodness sake, say there's no quid pro quo, because he had been tutored on that somewhere along the line, and then he would go ahead and commit a bribery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Does... I mean, is this just semantics? Does it matter? I think it matters also if, if you watch what Adam Schiff said yesterday at the beginning and the end and Nancy Pelosi today at her press conference, they're trying to broaden this beyond Trump. They're trying to make this about 
what precedent there should be for any president. Should we accept, the American public accept, that a president of the United States could be bribing a foreign official um, in exchange for military assistance? I think that's good messaging if they can stick to that. I also saw watch Adam Schiff say yesterday this was directed by President Trump. And I expect we're going to hear more of that from the Democrats as well. I don't think it's too late. It's the beginning of the public portion of this. And the, some of the public, I think, is just tuning in. I will say what's amazing about this is, I mean, if it's bribery, if, if that's what it is, uh, he's using taxpayer money, much like his foundation used other donors' money that was funneled through <laughs> his own foundation. Like, it, it, I don't know. He, it's it, a web. It seems, it, it seems like that's his <laughs> fingerprint. Yeah, it's, it's like everybody behavior. has a signature. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I agree. It's definitely not too late. I mean, I, w this is the very beginning of this process. And I do think that it, it has a lot to do, not just with messaging, but I do think the fact that it is the word in the Constitution. And so it's something that it, when you when you speak that way and you explain to people, the Constitution explicitly says this, um, and this is what he did. It, it, it's much easier for people to understand why he might get impeached. Yeah, I mean, it's this is a branding issue. Obviously, what they had been doing wasn't working. It wasn't all that compelling. Mm -hmm. And so they do need a simpler way to explain it. I, I really think one of the messaging issues, though, they're going to continue to get tripped up on is that they are trying to force people into a binary choice. Either you support Trump all the way and you condone all this or you want impeachment for bribery. And I just think Republicans are going to wind up with varying levels of discomfort. Some will say I don't have any problems. Some will say I have a little. Some will say I have a lot. But they don't want none of that group wants to go all the way to impeachment. Democrats seem to be trying to force the American people into a binary here. You love them or we have to impeach them. When we're on the eve of an election, I tend to think most people who are torn about this or confused may just default to, well, we'll have an election and let the American people render a verdict. There's a remedy. The political remedy is an election. And I think a lot of folks are going to go that way. I don't actually think that's the Democrat strategy or that we've seen any semblance of what you just said. I mean, for, for <laughs> I was talking about all, the Republican strategy. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I don't I just don't think that's what they're what they're trying to convey. It is amazing, though, that we're sitting here and you're suggesting as a Republican strategist that just kick Trump out of office at the election. That's that's no, the best I'm, option. I'm, I'm suggesting that that Republicans who have varying degrees of discomfort with this, who don't want to impeach the president, may prefer to say as a messaging tactic, the American people should have a say in this, not the partisans in Washington. Well, I think, look, do you remember when Congressman Rooney came out and said from Florida and said, I want, you know, I'm going to be around longer looking at people, my grandchildren, and I want to be able to tell them where I was in this moment. I actually think that as people start to turn, that that's the kind of messaging right, we, that will be effective. We've got to take a quick break. We're going to be around for two hours at least. Uh, we'll take a look at uh, why the president's biggest defenders are perhaps wrong to dismiss the testimony against him as hearsay. Well, uh, another big day tomorrow, particularly for Republicans who like to say hearsay at the damaging testimony conducted thus far. A U.S. diplomat who overheard President Trump ask a top diplomat to the EU about the status of investigations during a cell phone conversation is set to appear before the House impeachment inquiry. But that's going to be behind closed doors tomorrow. That's in addition to a second day of public testimony, this time with the ousted ambassador to Ukraine. Back with our team. Uh, Kirsten, there's something you wanted to, to mention about oh, yeah. uh, what well, Scott. Right before we went to break, you were saying that there are a lot of Republicans who are uncomfortable with what he did, but they don't want to impeach the president. Sure. And, but isn't, shouldn't they be looking at what the facts are and then deciding whether or not they want to impeach him? You're basically just saying because they like the president, they don't, they're not even considering the fact that he may have violated the Constitution. Well, I'm, I'm saying that a lot of Republicans I have spoken to have exhibited varying degrees of discomfort, some very little and some 
say bad judgment. Some say, man, that was terrible. But to rise to the most grave action you can take in our system against the president of the United States, especially on the eve of an election, makes almost all of them uncomfortable. We just don't use impeachment like this. And so they don't really? believe, they don't believe, they don't believe that what he did should be, especially because we're on the eve of another political remedy. So if we weren't on the eve of an election, you're saying that they would support impeachment? I, I'm saying that in the Clinton uh, instance, there was no remedy. It was in a second term. And so that made it more likely if you wanted to try to remedy it. In this case, there's a remedy that doesn't put, take it out of the hands of the American people. Well, That's but the fun. Constitution doesn't say unless an election is less than a year away. The Constitution says you should be removed from office, period. That's it. Uh, Jeff, about the hearsay thing. I mean, we've talked about this before. Uh-huh. Um, this is obviously not a courtroom. Correct. And yet hearsay is used as evidence in many cases. Yes, we're going to have a little law school class now. Hearsay <laughs> is an out-of-court statement offered for the truth of the fact asserted. That's something you learn in law an school. out-of-court statement. statement offered for the truth of the fact asserted. See, this is why I never went to law school. <laughs> but um, what, as you pointed out at the beginning of the program, um, there are 23 statutory exceptions to the hearsay rule. And one of the things you learn in trying cases is that hearsay, there are, those exceptions cover a lot. And you, if you're a good lawyer, you can get most hearsay in. The, it is, however, true. And I think it's important that, that we acknowledge this, that, you know, putting aside the legalities, I mean, the Republicans are right that, you know, if you're going to impeach Donald Trump, you need to talk about what Donald Trump did and said and ordered. And that, um, you know, has to be proven in different ways. And some of it is um, you show the implications of what he ordered. And that's really what Kent and uh, Taylor were about on the first day. But I don't think the Republicans are wrong mm-hmm. to demand evidence of what Donald Trump actually did. And David, I think that's more important than any sort of legal rule. Yeah, but the Republicans are treating us like idiots. You know, they just they 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 say you you're only bringing forth hearsay. You don't have any firsthand information. Well, we know that there are three people who know exactly what happened. One's named Giuliani. One, you know, one is is, is the oh. guy who's the chief of staff, Mulvaney, and the third one is is uh, Bolton. Bolton. And what's happened here? The pre- they've all three have been called. The president said, "No, you must not talk." So the Republicans then come up and say, "Well, you only have hearsay." Well, come on. I mean, the, this, the, the stop other, treating us so stupidly like we're right. children. The other argument on the hearsay thing uh, is there were a lot of folks doing a lot of, you know, somersaults in order to execute the president's policy. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if it's not the president directing it, essentially, then Republicans are saying Giuliani, you know, Rick Perry is doing his own foreign policy deal in yeah. Ukraine. All these people are kind of you know, working toward this end with no central organizing structure. Let me ask the lawyer, circumstantial evidence, wouldn't that be all these people suddenly telling the same story? I mean, they're, you know, different pieces of the story and they all match. That's true. But I mean, I think it's always important to remember that impeachment is a political process much more than a legal process in trying to sort out, you know, evidence into different categories. I mean, it's interesting, but I think ultimately what matters is what persuades politicians and the voters who elect them. Um, I, you know, I, I, it is, of course, you know, the, outrageous that Republicans are complaining about the absence of, uh, you know, hearing Trump's words when the people who heard him, heard right. Trump's words are not being allowed Scott, to testify. Would you like to see Mulvaney and Bolton testify? 
Uh, well, I, I was in this position once. I was subpoenaed by Congress, but I was a sitting White House staffer. And what they ultimately decided for me was you have to go up there, but we'll have a lawyer sit beside you and tell you what questions you can answer or not. So I got stuck in the middle of one of these privilege issues. These are higher ranking staffers than I was. At that level of the White House, as Mr. Gergen knows, there is a, a tradition of them being able to not have to comply with these kinds of subpoenas. It hasn't always worked. Uh, and sometimes, like, you know, in the Harriet Myers case, a court ruled against her. But there is an Office of Legal Counsel opinion from the DOJ that's been affirmed in administrations if, of both you know, parties. If, if only protect, John Dean were here, that protect. Yeah. Yeah. We, we could talk about. That. And it was most recently affirmed, <laughs> but, by the way, during but, the Obama. But, 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 just, but, but putting that aside, would you like to hear from them as a, a citizen? Would you like to hear what they have to say? Uh, I'm. I will give you. A, I'm torn because yes, I, of course, I want to know the truth. On the other hand, as a former executive yeah, branch yeah, guy, I am protective of and defensive of the separate. I just want to make one point about this. You know, it, it, it's, it, you're right about it. Sometimes it's accepted, sometimes it's not accepted. But presidents with integrity act to tell the truth and get it out there. When Ronald Reagan had Iran-Contra, he told everybody on his staff, all the White House, you must comply with a request to testify and you must turn over the documents. And to sit there and say, oh, no, no, we can't do that. We've got to find a precedent here and precedent there. When you've got an impeachment proceeding going forward and the country is in a grave moment, the president of the United States normally steps up to it. Mm. Uh, uh, well, I would, I would just say that what, what the Republican White House would say to that line of thinking in this case is this impeachment inquiry didn't attract a single Republican vote. And because it is a hyperpartisan process and because of how they acted during the Mueller probe, we don't trust that they are honest brokers or good faith actors in this process. That's that would be the retort. Matter. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll see you back here in our second hour tonight. Coming up next, though, the other major story tonight, which sadly is the nation's latest, uh, nation's latest school shooting. We'll have the latest on that when we continue. It is the end of an especially difficult day in Southern California tonight in the city of Santa Clarita, just north of Los Angeles. All the heartbreaking moments that follow a school shooting are unfolding yet again. With every update, every tear, each question why, another sad picture comes into focus. 16 seconds is all it took, according to authorities. 16 seconds, and now a 16-year-old boy and a 14-year-old girl are dead. Three classmates are wounded. The suspect, also a student, is badly wounded in what began this morning as any other Thursday at Saugus High. I heard the first shot and everyone thought it was a balloon and it got really quiet. And then two more shots went and then everyone just started running out of school. It was around 7.30 a.m., about 20 minutes before the start of classes at Saugus High School. Some students were just arriving when the shooting started. When we heard the first gunshot, we thought it was not something serious, and then we heard we two more. Like third. Law enforcement were on the scene within minutes, and parents soon received this emergency alert. Hold for an important message. Active shooter at Saugus High School. All schools in vicinity are on lockdown. Some students ran for shelter in neighboring houses. Others were trapped in the school. We heard from our friends that who are still stuck in school, that they're hiding in closets, they're just trying to find anything. Yeah, they're texting that, us that they're scared to die and they're hiding in closets and it's, it's very sad. Police say the gunman is a student at Saugus High School. Detectives have reviewed the video at the scene, which clearly show the su- subject in the quad, withdraw a handgun from his backpack, shoot and wound five people, and then shoot himself in the head. Two of those five were killed. 
a 16-year-old girl and a 14-year-old boy. The shooter survived and is being treated at the hospital. His motive still unknown. You won't let go of your daughter? No, I'm scared. It was very scary. We ran, we heard the one shot and then, then four after and we just started running and just all I heard was all these kids running and just screaming and calling their parents and it was, it was very sad. Terrified parents waited to be reunited with their children at a designated holding area. This mom says her son called her crying after he heard the gunshots and immediately drove to the school to try and find him. Sean, where are you, honey? Okay, can you just stay there, Sean? And we'll walk there to you, okay? Okay, I'm gonna walk to get you. Don't move, please. I just need to be, you just need to be in my arms right now, okay? Like so many other schools in America, the students of Saugus High School had active shooter training, but no amount of training prepared them for the shock and fear they experienced this morning. And Ember Miller is a senior at Saugus. She was there this morning. She joins us now. Ember, thanks so much for, for being with us. Uh, I'm glad you're doing okay. You were, I think you were in your first uh, period math class before it began uh, when the shooting started. Can you just walk us through what you what you heard? Yeah. Um, like you said, I was in my first period math class, just preparing like any other day. And all of a sudden, I see this guy barge in and he screams gunshots. And I happened to not really be paying attention. I was on my phone and my best friend looked at me and she tapped me on the shoulder and she was like, you need to get down under the desk. And I was like, okay. So I get under the desk and the lights turn off. And then pretty quickly, a bunch of students jumped up, grabbed desks and tables, pushed them against the door, stacked them against one another. And we all huddled into a corner. And I was with you know, three of my really close best friends and we just sat there for what seemed like a really long time. Um, I'm guessing it was like about an hour, 15, hour and a half, and we just waited for it to be over. Is that something uh, you had trained for? I mean, I, assume, I believe the school has had active shooter uh, training. Have you gone through that? Yeah, I mean, of course our school did a pretty good job of trying to teach us what to do, but it's really hard to know what to do when someone is actually there with a gun and your life is actually threatened. So I don't, I don't even think any amount of training or preparation could prepare us for what happened today. What was it like? I mean, you were waiting, you said, for, I think for, for more than an hour. I mean, are you, at that point, do, are people talking? Are you just, I mean, I, I assume, yeah. do you know what's going on outside? Are you on your phones? Yeah, so a bunch of us were on our phones texting one another, texting our moms, our dads. I, I was on Instagram and Snapchat just trying to get information, but there were so many things being told. I, I just remember being told like three people had been shot and then four people died. I, just so much misinformation was being thrown at us and we were all talking, um, me and my group of friends, there was four of us, we were all talking and we just had no idea what was happening outside. And after the police arrived, um, what happened? When did, would, uh, did, I assume it's police officers who came into your class? Yeah, yeah, um, I believe like five police officers came in and I actually heard them um, in the classrooms behind me before they even came in. And that's when I felt, I think I felt more adrenaline and more fear because 
I don't know, it was just a break from this crazy calm. And they came in and they had guns and they had us put our hands up like this. And I, I was so scared. Luckily, I had my phone and my keys in my pockets. But, you know, then they asked us to put our hands down and we walked outside. Yeah. And that's when we all saw the backpacks open and everything. Yeah. And, and I know it's important for you to, to, to let people know about the, the spirit of your school and, and the community right now. Yeah, we're all trying really hard to band together. And I know that everybody is really trying to advocate for change. I know I am. I want something to be done. I, I mean, it breaks my heart that more kids have to die for us to do something in this country. It really, really, really breaks my heart. Uh, Amber Miller, I appreciate you being with us. I'm glad you're uh, okay. Um, we'll talk again. Take Thank care. you so much. Again, the nation wonders what will change. A student who survived the Parkland, Florida rampage and took action to prevent scenes like this from happening again. He joins me next. The attack at Saugus High brings the number of school shootings in the U.S. to 44 this year alone. As the L.A. County Sheriff briefed reporters on the latest preventable American tragedy, he noted what others must have also thought about as they watched today's disturbingly normal scene. I hate to have Saugus be added to the names of Columbine, Parkland, Sandy Hook, but it's a reality that affects us all throughout the nation, something we're going to have to deal with. The sheriff mentioned Parkland, Florida. That's where Cameron Caskey uh, uh, survived the shootings at Stoneman Douglas High School one year and nine months ago today. He joins me tonight. Cameron, uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks who have been through these kind of shootings, and they say every time they hear about the next one or another one, it sort of brings it all back. Well, at this point, the, the, real, the, the real disappointment today after, after seeing this, this horrible tragedy unfold was just seeing further evidence that there is going to be no action taken. Because right as the shooting was unfolding, Cindy Hyde-Smith, a Republican senator from Mississippi, was blocking a bill that is bipartisan-backed for universal background checks that was introduced in February, stating that she doesn't believe that bills that would in infringe people's Second Amendment rights should be quote-unquote fast-tracked. Well, th that raises a lot of questions for people who have endured these mass shootings. Namely, what does fast mean to you? Because this bill has been collecting dust since February on Senator McConnell's desk. And I, of course he's not going to address it because it doesn't involve the sugarcoating of white supremacy. So it's obviously not in the world of his interest. But is this fast tracking? 44 s school shootings this year. Is, th is that fast to you? How many more bodies need to pile up before, before a bill that is bipartisan backed is considered slow enough for you, Cindy Hyde-Smith. It, it appears as though Republican inaction has a new face. So the, that's the, what we're seeing today. The, the Washington Post uh, reported uh, a short time ago, that a couple of weeks ago, that the White House has basically abandoned the idea of releasing any proposals to combat gun violence. I assume that has something to do also uh, not only with, with uh, you know, just the president's beliefs, but also the, the upcoming election. D did you have faith at all that the president would actually move forward on any sort of meaningful gun legislation? Well, like Cindy Hyde-Smith, Trump is, is taking money from the NRA. And at the end of the day, inaction can very, very clearly be traced back to taking money from the National Rifle Association, which, as much as it has been depleting, 
is still a financial force, and it is still an enemy that a lot of people who believe in the safety of American children and people everywhere need to keep in, in focus. So, no, I don't believe that with somebody like Trump as president, anything is going to be done. We, we banned bump stocks. That, that, is, that is nothing. That is an insult to the people who are losing their lives every single day. So what happens now? I mean, where do you see, you know, I think the last time you and I talked um, and I've talked to to other uh, young people who were uh, at at Parkland, you know, a lot of the emphasis they've been putting on is on what's happening in states and that there's been progress in various states. Does that make you hopeful? Well, at the end of the day, you can look at Chicago. Chicago has rampant gun violence that, that tears communities apart. And, Chicago, ha- and you know, Chicago is in a state with, with great gun laws. The fact of the matter is anybody can drive to Indiana, buy guns in bulk, bring them right back over to Chicago and sell them for, for more money. Because at the end of the day, state laws are important, but in the big picture— Every state law is only as strong as the laws we're passing on a national level. Mm. And that is incredibly important to remember. So while every single victory is saving lives and there are laws being passed everywhere to make people safer, we have uh, so far to go. And until we elect somebody into office who is going to actually take a stance here and not just pander like a psychopath, we're not going to see any change. Cameron Caskey. I appreciate your time, Cameron. Thanks Thanks for being with us. Coming up ahead, uh, Speaker Pelosi now believes that President Trump admitted bribery. Plus, we're just hours from hearing from the ambassador forced out as Rudy Giuliani and company moved in. Well, more on that as well ahead.